would you pay to follow somebody on Twitter? Because that is one of the latest ideas that Twitter have now floated. Yes, this week on Download This Show, we dive into the world of the super follow. Plus, there's been a renewed focus on whether the likes of Uber Eats are doing enough to ensure the safety of their drivers. They've unveiled some new plans, but are they really getting to the root of the issue? And sex workers are up in arms at the government's new online safety legislation. So why? Well, let's dive in. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show and some new and returning voices uh, reported with The Guardian. Josh Taylor, it's been far too long. Welcome back to the show. It's been so, so long, but it's great to be back. It's lovely to have you here. And alongside Josh, uh, coming to us from Perth is social media strategist Meg Coffey. Welcome to the show. It's your first time on the show. How's it feel so far? It is, and I'm so excited. You two are two gentlemen that I quite like, so this is going to be a fun chat. (laughs) Oh, well, we've still got... 28 minutes and 20 seconds to ruin that impression. That's a challenge I can take. I'm up for that challenge. And I should also say we have a special guest appearance by your dog who's sitting next to you as well, who seems very, very calm. Uh, Yes, well, we're going to hope that there's no special appearance from him, but you never know. Sounds good. All right. Well, first up this week, food delivery giant Uber Eats uh, have been under the spotlight over recent years, but they've made some moves. At least they say to bring more safety to their driver partners. Uh, Josh, what exactly have they unveiled? They've implemented basically a new system of of verifying that uh, the the drivers have pretty good bike, um, they're wearing a helmet and all that sort of stuff, and they're just basically going through basically a checklist, a safety checklist, which is interesting to me because there has been that spate of deaths. I think there were five last year and there's been two in in the past couple of months of uh, delivery riders and... Obviously, the focus is, on, is a lot on that. And then their response seems to be to put the focus back on the riders and what the riders can do to make themselves more safe rather than maybe addressing some of the other underlying issues. But it, it, I think it is a good start that they're definitely focusing on um, making sure that the riders have all the right equipment and, and as safe as they can be in, in terms of the equipment that they have. Meg, what do you make of these new changes? Do you think they'll they'll actually have a material impact on the lives of, of drivers? I don't understand why they weren't doing this from the beginning. <laughs> like, mm. isn't driver safety one of those things that should be paramount to what you're doing? Uh, I would hope that. But I don't know. What, what's interesting to me is that is the more that they do this, the more that they put these sort of regulations and help them, are they turning them into employees or are they still contractors? Well, this is kind of the interesting point, isn't it, Josh? Because I think this is kind of central to the tension between how organisations like Uber differ from other kinds of organisations. They still maintain in most markets, and not the UK, I think is an important point we should get to, their drivers are sort of independent from them to some shape, in in some way, shape or form. Yeah, I think going back to what was just said before, the reason why I don't think they've done this in the past is because they have just haven't seen these riders as being employees. And it's interesting, this has been done at the same time as they've released a new contract (coughs) to their riders in Australia. Australia basically saying that they, they sign away their rights, they're not considered employees, they're independent contractors. Basically, as, as sort of these, ca- these uh, court cases are mounting in terms of um, family members who are grieving or people have been ripped off uh, how much money that they're owed, that at the same time addressing the controversy over the accidents that have happened, but at the same time sort of separating themselves from, from having these uh, riders class as employees. So it's an interesting juxtaposition that they're, they're trying to balance at the moment. Meg, do you think they're doing enough to to ensure safety for drivers beyond what's been announced? 
I'm not sure. I mean, there's only so much you can do in forcing someone to wear a helmet unless they're actually out there with them, you know, uh, checking and, you know, spot checking those kinds of things. You do have to rely on on the individual to take the steps they need to keep themselves safe. In a way, this kind of seems like it's a blanket policy to absolve them from anything that happens. We've said you need to do this. It was your choice not to follow the rules. Therefore, it's on you that you ended up hurt or or something like that. And I, I mentioned earlier that there has been a, a few court cases around this. And I think one of the interesting ones, Josh, in the UK, there's been a pretty big change in how Uber drivers and delivery drivers are regarded in relation to that concept of them as employees. What, what's changed there? So essentially now they're, they're independent contractors, but where, where they might be tied to a certain app, they're basically, they've got the freedom now to be able to take on other jobs and things like that. That's that's basically giving them the line that, you know, these are not employees, these are independent contractors. And I think that's the way, that, that's the way they want to see it. And that's why it's going to keep going at this point. I don't think, the, I, from the government point of view, I don't think there's a lot of um, uh, appetite for trying to class these, these riders as anything other than independent contractors. How do you see them, Meg? Do you think they should be classified as employees or the the current setup around them? holds? It's a tough one. I think, to be honest, I do think that they are employees because they are signing up to a service and, 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 you know, they're, they're getting a wage from this company. It's, it's, it is a hard one. And I understand where Uber wants to come because they don't want to have the liability. They don't want to have to have the infrastructure. They don't want to have to have all that stuff that goes along with having employees. But I think that these people are getting the raw end of the stick by being contractors. I don't think that they're actually getting the benefits. There's a, there's a lot a lot of risk that goes to them as opposed to Uber in this case. So they should be employees. And does the freedom that comes with being an independent contractor, does, do you think in any way offsets that or no? Well, I mean, yeah, that, that is one of the, the benefits of being a contractor. You can make your own hours. You can do what you want. You can choose when you want to work and when you don't. And then you also have to deal with the repercussions of that. You don't get annual leave. You don't get sick leave. You don't get those types of things. But with any company, if you work as a casual employee long enough, you kind of technically become an employee. It's, I think it's, 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 it's such a new technology in that regard, and it's it's a new it's a new form of employment that I don't think that we have current laws and current standards that can help protect and cover and explain it for that matter. Is it a case that we don't necessarily have the right legal framework for these emergent kinds of jobs? Yeah, I think we're still really coming to terms with it. I, I mean, prior to the the pandemic, there was. You know, everyone. The argument was essentially that these people are, are doing it voluntarily. They're they're working the hours that they want to work. They're doing like that. But during the pandemic, I think delivery riders in particular became such a vital part of the economy, and were essentially frontline workers. They were delivering people's foods and making sure that people had had food at home when they couldn't leave their house and things like that. And so I think people's understanding of what role they play in society is changing now that people have become so reliant on their services. And and when you see how the employee are being treated, or not employees, however the company wants to define them, how the riders are being treated, um, it, it does probably give a lot of people pause for thought in saying, well, is this worth having food delivered at you know such a low cost, or do you, do you want to maybe reevaluate your um, your relationship with these with these apps? We have totally reevaluated things. I think the pandemic has changed all kinds of views towards the gig economy and other things. And and we wouldn't have survived without our Uber drivers. How are we going to get our food when we were in lockdown? So I do think there needs to be a bigger conversation about the the employer contractor situation because it's it's not a typical freelance situation. 
All right. Download the show is what you're listening to. Mark Fennell is my name, and this is your guide to the week in media, technology, and culture. Josh Taylor and Meg Coffey are our guests this week. And would you pay to follow somebody on Twitter? Because that is one of a range of new features that have been uh, raised by Twitter. Uh, Meg, introduce me to the concept of a, of a super user. Or a, a super follow, rather. Uh, a super follow, yeah. So this is this new feature um, where basically you can, it's a bit like Patreon, where you can pay to subscribe to a certain person's Twitter account and you can get more information. In, in theory, by paying this fee, you're going to get access to, you know, extra tweets or extra content or things that you you wouldn't get Otherwise, I don't know about this one though. It seems, <laughs> uh, I, mean, I look, I go to Twitter because it's where I learn all my things, right? But that's what it is great about is that we all share the information freely. If I want to pay for something, I'll subscribe to your newsletter. I, I doubt that I'm going to pay to follow you. But is it that different though, Meg? Like, I mean, if, if that person's giving you incredibly useful content, like what distinguishes it between paying for somebody's newsletter and paying for their Twitter? Like what, is it just length? Is that, is that the key distinction? Probably, but also, I don't know, Twitter's where we share. Like, I'm a big fan of marketing Twitter, and we share so much information. It's not about keeping secrets, about I tried this, have you tried that, this campaign worked, that campaign didn't. Learn from me, and I love that community aspect of Twitter. I don't want to have to pay for that. If I'm going to pay for it, it's going to be from someone that I, that's going to be a mentor, that's going to be someone that I can, um, maybe length, maybe, yeah, maybe it is the length of the newsletter. But that <laughs> length doesn't always mean quality. No, it definitely does not. Uh, Josh, super follows, is it a thing you would ever do? I can't see myself ever trying to convince anyone to pay for tweets, but I think from Twitter's point of view, they've seen, you know, so many of these services now pop up, Patreon, OnlyFans, uh, you know, those those Substack, things like that, where people are still on Twitter and using Twitter to promote themselves to link to these off-platform services where they can charge money for it. And their are essential viewers like, why aren't we trying to get in on that? Um, so I can understand the logic of what Twitter's trying to do, but whether people will be willing to pay for tweets or whether they'll see it as some sort of other subscription service on top of that, I think it's another thing entirely. Substack has certainly sort of taken off in the last few months. I know certainly, like, it seems every journalist in the United States has set one up with this personalised uh, newsletter. I mean, I, I must confess, I don't massively, beyond the length distinction, I don't actually see that there's a massive gap between the two. But maybe maybe I'm getting this horribly wrong, Josh. Where do you stand on, on the distinction of why one would be worth money and the other would not? Yeah, I, I don't know whether it would be worth money or not. It's, just, it's one of those things that put it out to the market and see whether there's a market for it and if there's not, then just abandon it. I can see there may be potentially people who you know have quite a big Twitter following where that is their sole means of getting a message out there and that's where they turn to. But whether the people are willing to be paying for tweets, it's, it's really hard to say. And then whether you can actually make a living off it, you'd have to have... It's not like, uh, you know, small publishers could actually do anything with it. It's basically just for the people with millions of followers and, and lots and lots of followers who potentially benefit out of it. And theoretically, and I know this is a mass generalisation, but if you have millions and millions of followers, it's, it's a pretty good assumption that you already have other forms of income streams that have sort of led you to get that that many in the first place. And I, and I know that's a massive generalisation. It doesn't work for everybody, but I think in you know, in broad strokes terms. Meg, like hypothetically, what are the sorts of things and the sorts of users that it might work for? Like who would 
do you think benefit from this? Well, see, I go, I think if you're super niche, like, yes, you could be the person that has all the millions of followers, but as you said, you're going to be diversified anyways. But I can think there's all these really like niche communities. And I can see how if you were, you know, like in agriculture or you're in a certain industry and, and you've built this niche community around you, how you could do that. But then there's that whole, we're playing on rented land. And why are you building this community on Twitter? You'd be far better off building your own database and getting your own email and referring back to newsletters. I, I think, I don't know, I'm still sort of stuck on that. If I'm going to pay for something, it's going to be a newsletter and, and not Twitter. Maybe that's because I own the newsletter or the, I don't mm. know. It's, um, but niche, I think if, yeah, if you, if you had a really involved community and you had something that, you know, you can't find in mainstream media or you can't find in other places and you're the voice of that, you're the voice of ag in Western Australia, um, I could see that people would pay along for that. It is a little bit like we learnt zero lessons from the great Facebook debacle of 2021. Like, hey, maybe don't build your entire business on a third party that you have no control over. Um, for you, Josh, do you think there are sorts of characters on, on Twitter who would benefit from a function like this? Uh, yeah, it's really hard to say. I think some of the, the people who are good at getting... The, the people who are getting the most engagement on a lot of things are people who are doing news things, like you see the, the clips of videos that are from news conferences that go really viral and stuff like that. But it kind of lends itself to being free. Like Twitter is the microblogging platform that lends itself to being free. And I remember back when I worked at a paywall website, whenever I would tweet something that was behind a paywall, I would get lots of people complaining that, mm. that I was tweeting something behind a paywall. So um, I think Twitter as a platform generally lends itself to everything being free. And, and I struggle to see how that's going to change it. I think it would be a, a substantial change in the platform. But we've seen Twitter throwing its hand into trying a whole bunch of different things like, you know, they're talking about doing group chats and they've they're incorporated some of the, the clubhouse stuff as well. So I think they're just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks at the moment. <laughs> I mean, that's such an interesting point, though, about, you know, people do, st it's just, a, it's a higher wall for people to, to leap over. But do you think, you know, as more things move behind paywalls, certainly newspapers and to a large degree have, many of them have, have moved behind paywalls. Do you think people are getting more comfortable, Meg, at paying for content online? Because that was always a big psychological leap has taken a good decade for, for people to kind of get over in many ways. Yeah, look, I think the masses will always still want it for free and they don't understand that you do have to pay for quality journalism. But I think the shift, uh, the tide is shifting towards understanding that you do have to pay for quality journalism. Um, and if you want things and you want um, information that's particular to you, that personalization you're going to get by paying for it. What do you think, Josh? Do you think audiences are generally getting more comfortable paying for things now? Yeah, I think um, maybe somewhat interestingly, I think the shift to streaming services for video has changed the, fr the framework of how people view content online as well. I think now that people are signing up for streaming services, signing up for a subscription for other things is less of a, less of an issue now. People are willing, you know, everyone has a Spotify subscription and, and things like that. Um, so it, it doesn't take a great leap for news. And, 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 and I think... You know, from, from the Guardian point of view, we don't have a paywall, but we do have subscribers. And I think a lot of people who, who subscribe to the Guardian are doing it from the basis of uh, we, we appreciate the product you're doing and the work that you're doing, and we're we wanting to reward that. So um, even though there's no paywall, they still feel like they're getting benefit out of the fact that they're um, subscribing to the Guardian and helping keep us going and doing what we do. Just coming back to Twitter for a second, Meg. Twitter has been weirdly silent in some of the debates we've recently had around Facebook and Google and how much they should be paying for, for content. And yet it is very much a news 
platform to a large degree. Like there's a lot of, you know, every journalist under the sun is, is on Twitter and it is it still plays a kind of crucial role in the ecosystem of information of getting news out fast. Somehow Twitter's avoided being a part of that bigger discussion. How is Twitter going more generally in your view? Uh, yeah, I thought that was very interesting. And I, I kind of was like, Twitter, this is your moment. Look, generally speaking, Australians don't like Twitter. The mm. only people in Australia on Twitter are journalists, those interested in the news, sports, and politics. So the general public isn't on there. So maybe, you know, I did. I really thought that this was Twitter's moment to step up and go, look, come to our platform. This is where we you can still get the news and you can get it faster and better than anyone else. I didn't see them step up in that regard, though. Maybe they wanted to keep their head low and, and not get involved in the conversation. <laughs> They made a submission to the news media code saying they didn't want to be included in it. So I, that was very clear. My understanding of why they weren't included was essentially just because the, it, it is only a small percentage of the Australian population who are on there. So it makes less sense to include them. Is that because they don't want to reach out to wider communities? Is that because they're quite happy to play that role in the ecosystem, Josh? Yeah, I definitely think that's a factor of it. I think that they realise that they are... I mean, I, I go to... Twitter for my breaking news a lot of the time. That's where I see everything that's going on. And I think, yeah, a, a vast portion of the of the people who are on there are journalists. So I can see that they don't really want to expand beyond there. There are specific communities. You know, there's the marketing community. There's, you know, there's, there's different, uh, you know, there's, there's gaming communities. There's the stand communities. There's the gay communities on there. And they're all playing their roles. But there's the, the, that overwhelming presence on there is definitely news. Yeah, I, I must say, like, my impression of Twitter, Meg, is that it is... Um it's somewhat tribal in the sense like you have certain communities that you interact with and they there's a little bit of overlap in different areas but but and maybe the reason i think it's filled with journalists is because i happen to be one but it does seem that it it sort of exists for discrete ironically given it's one of the more open platforms it does seem to exist primarily for discrete communities as opposed to a sort of a mass spray which is what i guess looking back on it is what Facebook has become. Is, does that ring true to you? Oh, oh, definitely. I mean, there's lots of people that talk about how horrible Twitter is, and I think it, it, it really can be. But if you can find your community, if you can find your tribe, it's an awesome place because you are surrounded by like-minded people and you are open and you can talk. You know, I get to talk to people all over the world. I get to talk to people that I might not have any normal right to talk to, the head of marketing at this company or the CMO from that company. And, and you talk to them as an equal. So that community, and it does, it very much becomes tribal and it's ours and we're proud of it and we're protective of it. Um, other than that, it is full of journalists. I, too, go to Twitter for my breaking news. I, I'm not, you know, I'm on that fringe of being in media. So for me, it's, it's, it's a very important place. Um, I'd be lost without Twitter. Twitter's what got me through the pandemic, if anything. Mm. All right, download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And the government has been pushing through an online safety bill that has variably been called fast-tracked, rushed and ill-equipped to deal with uh, our online behaviour. But is any of that true and exactly what does it do at all? Meg, just give me the basics now. What is this new legislation that has been pushed through? So what they're looking to do is basically try and curb the harassment and the online bullying that, that we have all experienced. 
unfortunately, they don't understand. It's once again, it's legislators that don't understand the technology and don't understand how, how the platforms work. And this seems to be a bit too far reaching in how they can act and how they can find the platforms for not removing content or not being proactive in the bullying and harassment content that's put onto their platform. And so part of it is to give more power to the Australian eSafety Commissioner to target bullying. How does it actually do that, Josh? Uh, so it, it eventually confers a lot of power over to the eSafety Commissioner to basically give rules to internet service providers, digital platforms, everything like that, to remove content, to take down bullying activity, um, image-based abuse, everything like that. And and it even goes a bit further. It's not just about bullying it, it, and extremist content and all that sort of stuff. It's actually a classification system as well. So the, it will give the safety commissioner powers to essentially force Twitter, Facebook, stuff like that, to remove any sort of content that might be uh, over... Well, R18 plus or over, essentially, and, and say, you know, you can't host that uh, here anymore. So it is a massive amount of power for one unelected bureaucrat to hold. And, and, and even though the, the current e-safety commissioner, Julia Eamon Grant, has s- stressed that she doesn't want to go after adult websites, for example, or, or anything like that, where it's consensual activity, they're still proceeding with this legislation. And, and I've talked to a couple of the, the tech platforms about it, and they're quite concerned not only about the, the conferral of this massive amount of power, but just how quickly the government is trying to rush it through. So it went it went out to consultation just before Christmas, two days before Christmas. They finished up consultation on Valentine's Day and then within 10 days the legislation was in Parliament without even responding to the consultation draft. So it, it's being very, very rushed at the moment. Why, Josh, like what is the rush? Why does it need to happen so fast? That's that's the mysterious part. We don't really know. There's no particular rush on this. I, uh, my my gauge of it is they just want to get it out of the way before it becomes too controversial. But the government's been really stressing that this is just transferring a lot of existing existing legislation, existing powers online that already exist in the real world. But I think there's a lot of concern over how it's drafted, drafted and what it will actually do in practice. That that means that this sort of stuff would be you know, discussed and, and fleshed out a bit more if there was more time for it. But, but th- the fact that they've given such a short deadline to, to resolve this uh, is, is concerning a lot of people at the moment. How would it actually work, Ming? I mean, we're talking about, you know, giving the eSafety Commissioner, you know, the ability to rapidly block sites. But how, exactly in practice, what would that look like? Do we know? Yeah, so essentially, they give them the power to issue notices to these providers and say, "I think it, I think it's between, I think it's a twenty-four hour notice period that they've got to remove it." This stuff happens a lot of the time already, you know, particularly with with bullying and and um, child abuse material and things like that. And from what I understand, like the, the platforms are pretty responsive to this. Not only, like they don't, they don't want particularly like the worst of the worst stuff. They don't want that on their platform, but a lot of them are concerned that this this quick turnaround time is, is quite concerning and a lot of the stuff that a lot of the powers that will be conferred on the e-safety commissioner you know powers of investigation powers of um some of the some of the demands that they can do i mean there's even a clause that says that if an app has class one refused classification material on its on its service or you can just send it over there the e-safety commissioner couldn't order removed from the apple app store or the google play store and things like that so that it's, it is a lot of power and there's very little oversight. I mean, um, I think if you want to have it reviewed, uh, if you, you disagree with a decision, you want to have it reviewed, you can go to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, but there's no sort of internal review process, which is fairly common for, you know, a regulator of this kind. So it, it, it's just a, a lot of power without very much oversight. Just uh, if I could get a bit of clarification on something, is it stuff that is necessarily hosted in Australia or is it the accessing from Australia? 
So, so say an adult website, yeah. that would be stuff hosted. If, if the server is in Australia, then that is applicable. They, they basically have no powers to issue notices overseas. But the, uh, the clause around social media says that if it can be viewed by an Australian, then that's where it applies. So that means Facebook and, and Twitter and to some extent Google in terms of its search results and things like that would be would have it, this law applied to them as well. So that's where that's why they're concerned. Even even a company like Twitch, which does the live streaming of video games and stuff like that, basically saying, I'm not sure this should apply to us. We don't really, you know, we're live streams. We don't really rate our content because it's coming and going so quickly. So everyone, <laughs> like a lot of the big companies are really concerned about it at the moment. In terms of hosting, I mean, you would argue that most of the hosting, certainly for adult content, doesn't necessarily happen on Australian servers. But there are a, a lot of people that work in the sex work industry who have websites that are based in Australia, they would fall foul of these laws pretty quickly, I would imagine, Meg. Oh, yeah, definitely. And and people who have OnlyFans accounts, you know, it, it is, if people are using these websites to get the word out and they're doing it in a, um, shall we say, legal way and everything is above board, then there's no reason that their website should be taken away from them because they're simply rated higher. And I think that's, you know, as Josh was saying, there there's a lot of... Um, it's a broad sort of legislation without really dialing down as to who this affects individually. And Josh, you've been speaking to sex workers and they are quite concerned about this, aren't they? Yeah, I think the thing that they're most concerned about, um, it, it, the promotion of their services on social media is obviously concerned um, whether that gets targeted. But I think from, from both the bullying and the adult imagery side of things, um, the, the concern is that even though the e-safety commissioner may not want to um, investigate certain areas, uh, if if they get if, if the safety commissioner gets a lot of these reports um, complaining and, and it, the the process is open to abuse so it could be you know an ex lover it could be someone who doesn't like you it could be religious groups going after sex workers and things like that it is open to abuse and that I think that's the major concern from these from these organisations and and people at the moment that their work is going to be targeted by people who don't really want them online anymore mm. and in terms of what a more complete vision of this legislation would look like I mean. Are there specific requests that people in those communities are after to, to, to make this legislation more workable for people in their industries, Josh? They essentially just want Section 9, which is the adult classification area, removed from this legislation. I, I think they want, uh, firstly, a, um, a review of the classification code to happen first. Um, so currently, the eSafety Commissioner can only order take note notices if, it goes, um, if it's been classified by the classification board, but under this legislation, um, they'll have the power to remove based on a judgment call. And there's a lot of concern because our, our classification system is so old and out of date, it's not up to speed for, for the internet age. It's not up to speed with, I guess, where Australian society is at the moment. So uh, the fact that they're, they're rushing this with it without having that other section of it updated, they just want it separated. They want it completely separated. So we can focus on the bullying parts of it and make some changes there, but keep the classification side of it separate. When you say classification, you're literally talking about the GPGM R18+. Like that, that's what we're talking about, right? Yeah, those, you know, those old uh, stuff that you'd see at the start of VHS tapes, things like that. Um, they, it hasn't been updated since those days, essentially. And then, you know, they made some adjustments at the edges around self-classification for streaming services and things like that. But overall, the whole system has not really been assessed in quite a long time. Mm. So those are the criticisms of the legislation. Josh, in terms of how it tackles uh, issues like violent extremism and child exploitation material, do you think the legislation will be effective at tackling that stuff? 
I mean, yeah, I think it's enshrining a lot of the work that the e-safety commissioner is already doing in terms of issuing notices to these sites to take it down and helping helping people with things like that. It's been doing the, the commissioner's office has been doing a lot of good work on image-based abuse in terms of getting things down. I think that what the government has tried to do is just basically lump a whole bunch of online safety regulation issues into one basket and pass it off as as basically trying to update. Uh, safety framework for the for the 21st century for for online and it's conflated a lot of issues and I think that that's where a lot of the concern is about and the fact yes we like we really want to tackle online bullying yes we want to really tackle image based abuse yes we want to really tackle abhorrent violent material and terrorist material but we need to make sure we get the legislation right so that there's no unforeseen consequences and the legislation works as it should. All right, we'll see how it plays out. Josh Taylor from The Guardian, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It was lovely to have you back on. Yeah, it was great to be back. Oh, we'll do it again soon. And Meg Coffey, how was your first experience on Download This Show? Oh, I absolutely loved it. You guys made it very easy on me. Thank you. We would love to have you back. That is all we've got time for on the show this week. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to peruse us on. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.